Hello, everyone, and welcome to Net Zero Investor. Today, I'm talking to Nandikesh Sivalingam and Laurie Milavirta, both from the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air. We're here to talk about India and China, which, give or take the US and Africa, will be the most significant markets in global energy production and consumption in the next half century or so. What is the state of play today? What changes are coming? And how will investors need to position themselves? Nandikesh Laurie, a warm welcome to you both. Let's start with you. What does your organization do and, and who do you do it for? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Uh, so we are a uh, center for research on energy and clean air. As our name suggests, uh, we are a research think tank. Uh, we do work on uh, looking at air pollution and energy issues across the globe. Primarily look at how do we clean our cities and countries to achieve uh, cleaner air. And while doing that, how do we work towards a clean energy transition vis-a-vis -vis how do you phase out fossil fuels from our energy systems and move towards a much cleaner energy forms? So that's pretty much in a nutshell what we do. Good stuff. And how do your paths cross with institutional investors? You're providing them, are you, with analytics and research to help them make decisions? The data that we provide is definitely being used by people who invest in the energy sector or, um, or provide analysis. Uh, uh, for investors, we are also uh, speaking directly, and I, th I think it goes both ways. For example, in China, investors in IPPs and some of the other key markets have uh, access and channels to state-owned enterprises that we don't have, and uh, we have our own sources and our own contacts. So I, I think it's a it's a dialogue that has uh, benefited both sides. Good stuff. So let's let's turn to coal. Where are both India and China in terms of coal extraction and production today? Who wants to start? Yeah, so it, it's India is in a kind of a crossroads right now. Uh, we see India making has made a, like really a big pledge in terms of advancing the renewable energy targets the last several years. While domestically, we also see coal mining and coal power generation actually you know, uh, expanding in a, in a proportional manner. I would not say disproportionately. While we are seeing the uh, highest peak in the in the, the last few months, right, and then that peak is increasing with every month uh, and every year, so we don't see a slowdown as such for Indian coal, right? Domestically, the coal output demand has also gone up drastically. So we are, I think, in the process of uh, mining and producing record levels of uh, coal power, at least in the immediate future. That's what we see. Okay, uh, Laurie, that sounds like a fairly bleak picture. What's what's the status quo in China? China's coal consumption has been broadly flat since uh, 2013, which was uh, a time when coal consumption first uh, saw a downturn because of um, an industrial slowdown, because of growing investment in clean energy, because of a very aggressive national clean air program. And now we've seen an uptick around 2017 to early 2021 because of a very old school economic policy response to do the trade war first and then do the COVID crisis. But now there's another downturn. And what's been happening in the past couple of years is very dramatic expansion in clean energy, especially wind and solar investment, which is now reaching the scale where it's starting to provide most of the increase in electricity demand. At the same time, the government is still promoting very aggressive investment in coal mining, also an expansion in coal-fired power, coal-based uh, steelmaking, and so on. So it's really looking like an all-of-the-above energy strategy on steroids. And, and for investors, that obviously 
means that uh, we're likely to see declining utilization, a new panic about uh, um, overcapacity in those uh, sectors, um, all kinds of policy risks uh, going forward, even though at the moment the political support also for coal-based industries is very strong. Okay, so neither of those pictures sounds particularly optimistic. To what extent do you think these are interim strategic policies, you know, i.e. the use of either the steady or the increasing use of, of coal power? And to what extent do you think that's just the way things are going to be? I didn't want to provide a, uh, an exceedingly bleak picture because uh, truly what's happening on the clean energy side in China is is astonishing. Mm. So last year more than 100 gigawatts of wind and solar was put in place. Now we could be easily looking at uh, 100 gigawatts of solar alone, a total of 150 uh, for wind and solar. So these are astonishing growth rates, and they're something that uh, the government wants to see. At the same time, energy demand growth has uh, slowed down, first because of the construction downturn, which was a policy-driven development and and, uh, is going to be a long-running theme. That was not a blip. Right now, emissions and uh, energy demand have been dipping very dramatically because of the COVID-19 lockdowns again. We'll see how long that goes on for, but that's, uh, I guess, at least the hope is that that is more short-term. But at the moment, emissions are going down and there are at least two of these major structural trends uh, shifting away from construction as driver and the clean energy expansion that are backing up that uh, trend. So so I, I'm not prepared to declare that 2019 was the peak for China's emissions, but I'll at least say that that's a very distinct possibility. Okay, so well, that's a lot more optimistic. Uh, Nandikesh, where's India on that journey, do you think? I mean, you've, you've, you know, you've pointed out that consumption is, is on the up at the minute, coal extraction is on the up. When's that likely to peak? Yeah, uh, so we discuss uh, when potential date for peak. I think mm. uh, on the, at the intent level, the government and most of the players do understand coal days are numbered and then uh, they'll have to face down eventually. But in the shorter term, uh, most of the domestic policies are driven by energy security, prices, and etc. Right? So you see coal mining expanding in the last five to six years because of uh, a shortage. Now, the reason for the shortage uh, may be you know, uh, mismanagement and things like that. But inherently, the government believes that uh, if we have more coal, then we would uh, survive. So therefore, uh, at the intent level, there's, there's understanding and uh, interest in terms of moving away. But in the medium term, they are just uh, stuck with the inertia, which was created by the fossil fuel industry and then their mismanagement in the sector overall, uh, which has been going on for decades. So I think that's the coming out of that is what uh, uh, is you know, delaying, the, delaying the progress. Okay. Uh, for a peak, so, so that brings to the uh, discussion on peak. So even though there's the consumption of coal is increasing and we see more coal power being generated, but the inertia that the industry sector had like five years back, that has died down drastically, right? We have, like the, like in the case of China, a lot of standard asserts. Even though peak is in, uh, increasing, there are shutdowns have, during the same peak times have also increased. There are almost 40 gigawatts of power plant which are not operational uh, in the coal sector. So there's no uh, more investments coming, at least in the private sector, uh, in the, I think starting from 2019 onwards. So we see a peak, uh, there's a kind of a, uh, unwritten you know, understanding that we would peak our coal power uh, sometime before end of this decade. Right? And then uh, from there, 
steadily move, uh, move on to reducing or phasing down uh, the coal demand. I think right now we are stuck in the time loop of energy security and managing the crisis, both domestic as well as created by global uh, in the Ukrainian war. So therefore, we see a kind of departure away from what uh, what we otherwise intended to do. Okay, so in terms of the government's real intentions, in terms of their strategic plans over the long terms, you both think that they're actually quite credible players in this market now? In the Indian perspective, yes. So I think what happened in the last several years is global policy also dictated uh, what energy choices India would make. Like primarily, finances in the coal sector dried out. Uh, it was more and more difficult to get you know, access to cheap money. Therefore, in uh, most of the investments that you know that came into the coal sector, uh, stories are uh, eroding. And with uh, China increasing its uh, RE ambition, you know, uh, markets got really saturated with a lot of cheap uh, solar rendement. So prices fell down. So India had to adopt uh, the new uh, technologies. So therefore, that pathway is now, you know, it's it's the ball has been rolling for for a few years now, like more than five years since Paris, I would say. So I don't see that going back. Uh, but how soon is, I think, is the question that I would, you know, ask. How soon can things turn around and then we commit, we deliver on the commitments that we have made. I think for India, policy is not necessarily the main, main roadblock. It's about achieving and implementing that to realize uh, the end goals. That has and would still remain the bigger challenge. So, yeah, I don't see a challenge with respect to policies being available for, uh, for moving forward. Okay, so policy, not the issue, more, more about practicalities. What, what are some of those practicalities, do you think? You know, is one of them foreign capital coming into the sectors? Definitely, that's one of them. Mainly for the renewable energy uh, sector, there's mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, if you look at the current sector's performance, primarily it's foreign capital that drives uh, the RE installation, right? And we need more domestic banks you know, investing in renewable energy, which is very scarce despite the fact that the government's ambitious commitment. But on the, on the non-source-wise issues, we need to modernize our grids. Uh, we need to you know, save our distribution companies from the debacle that they have dug themselves into. So these are the more operational management level issues which uh, we need to come out of if you have to integrate 50% of our RE into the grid uh, in the next seven, eight years. It's not an issue with you know, uh, which source, but an issue with you know, how do we practically manage the electricity sector. And also with respect to import tariffs and uh, other issues on solar and wind, so how do you manage policymaking on, on for the energy sector is also going to dictate how fast adoption is going to happen. Okay, Laurie, how important are these two markets in terms of their energy energy transition to the global net zero challenge? Uh, starting with China, obviously, with uh, more than um, a quarter of global emissions uh, and being responsible for the majority of uh, emissions growth uh, over the past two decades, um, obviously, China's emissions trends are crucial. Um, in order to get to net, net zero. Uh, besides that, uh, the uh, supply chains for all kinds of clean energy are in, in incredibly dominated or intertwined with uh, with Chinese players, whether you look at the uh, uh, critical minerals, whether you look at the supply of batteries, of solar panels, and, and so on. And, and that's something that is going to be a challenge to manage with, and something that uh, I, I think both um, Europe and the US are going to to have to grapple with quite a bit. But from China's perspective and the motivation of uh, China's leadership to push forward with this, their uh, determination to to be a market leader in these uh, low-carbon technologies, whether it's uh, batteries and uh, solar panels uh, or electric vehicles or 
uh, smart grids or uh, high-speed rail. I think that's something that is uh, very solid and that's going to make sure that China is going to be doing at least as much as uh, the main competitors and, and probably quite a bit more. I, I think the main challenge or the main bottleneck is going to be the speed as, at which you're prepared to scale back those uh, coal-dependent uh, industries, coal mining, coal-fired power generation, uh, steel making with uh, blast furnaces and so on. Those uh, industries, this is not a, not a challenge that is unique to China, but there are, of course, uh, incredibly powerful industries and uh, managing that uh, uh, wind down and, and uh, making sure that provinces, the, the key state-owned enterprises, have their own pathways to zero carbon. That means that the transition, that they're not um, only on the losing side of that transition, is going to be crucial. I hope Nandi can be, speak a bit more about uh, the significance of India. One thing that I I think uh, India deserves a bit more credit for than, than Nandi gave is uh, is the fact that uh, there was definitely, when, when India started the rollout of wind and solar, there was clearly an economic case there were, uh, for it. There was an ec- economic opportunity for it. But basically, India and South Africa were the first major emerging markets to grasp that opportunity. That just means that many of those challenges with uh, with grids and so on that India is facing, many other emerging markets are going to face after India. So solving them in India definitely has uh, global significance in, in that way as well and, and potential for exporting some of those solutions. Okay, so Nandikesh, you think there's a desire on the part of India to be a credible player as well in the, in the international clean energy market? Yes, so the uh, Indian uh, Solar International Solar Alliance, which you know, which uh, our government spearheads, is precisely, I think, uh, to export some of the learnings and uh, policy making and things like that uh, into uh, other developing nations as well. So the desire is definitely there. Like I think, uh, from the India's point of view, even though we are not we are we are among the top ten emitters and and may not be responsible for all the emissions and the challenges. I guess it's also talking to the equity with respect to other countries who are still you know, least developed countries and you know, what kind of a space they are going to get uh, in developing their new systems and what support and things. So that's the space I see India can actually play uh, a much uh, bigger role in terms of showing leadership. While uh, I think uh, we have all the, uh, I think we have gone miles ahead in terms of figuring out renewable energy policy making, incentivizing the industry to uh, invest. And you know, and bringing our uh, prices cheaper uh, for it to like today, around ten percent of our energy mix comes from renewable energy. So that's that's going to go uh, higher from from now on. So I think there's a lot of things that India can export in terms of learning, investments, and things like that to other developing nations on on the clean sector. Okay, let's look at this from the perspective of the institutional investor. Uh, you know, the, who are thinking about uh, emerging markets allocations. They're thinking about energy transition as a, as a theme for investment in the coming years. If they're looking to India and China, what do you think are the big opportunities and the big risks that they need to consider for the next five, 10 years? Uh, I think for China, it's uh, obviously most of it is, is uh, simply macro. What's the, the future of the country's capital markets, essentially? But besides that, I would look out for two things. One of them is this uh, Brewing overcapacity issue that I flagged, especially with uh, with legacy industries, uh, thermal power, steel, cement, and so on. And the other one is the supply chain issues, which I I think most uh, investors are pretty plugged into. 
it, it's something that is definitely coming up now in in Europe with demands on more transparency and forced labor in in the manufacturing of uh, uh, solar panels and other products and so on. So that's going to be a challenge. And I think the key opportunity there will be manufacturing in third countries that have uh, more robust labor and environmental protections and that could export to Europe, but that do have uh, more favorable cost structures for manufacturing. Okay, uh, Nandikesh, same question to you, opportunities and risks in, in India. So the main opportunity I see, because India has a large commitments to install around 500 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030, that's where I see most the biggest opportunities arising for institutional investors. The second aspect of that is, with that, we'll also need to modernize our grid infrastructure, mainly on the electricity side of things. That's another area where, you know, where a lot of investment would go on in the future as well. As risks, I see... Thermal power, like I think if you look at uh, the history, uh, investments in thermal power has led to a lot of challenges for investors with the standard assets and are not being able to resolve altogether. Right? I see for the investment, any kind of investment, whether it's on the mining side or on uh, power side of things, as a big challenge. And I also don't see much happening because I think that's, that train has sailed long back. Where I think uh, things need to be, uh, investors would need to be cautious is on the uh, steel and other non-power sectors. Uh, we had experiences where uh, international investors pulling out of uh, steel companies uh, because most of our steel is still uh, highly emitting, uh, not even does not even meet global standards. So we've seen uh, Nordic countries pull, uh, companies pulling out of Indian steel uh, sectors because of that reason. So if you are looking to you know, green your uh, investments, then you know, further investing into you know, heavy uh, uh, industrial sectors could be challenging if they are not committed enough to Clean up the uh, you know their supply chains and, and their processes. And that's where I would definitely focus on moving uh, forward, which has not got so much attention yet. So if investment into the current sector as it is would mean more locked locked in investments into uh, more carbon. So that's where I see a, a risk going down. Great, that's really that's really interesting. Thanks. So let's let's briefly discuss if we could the the war in Ukraine to finish off. And according to some recent research of yours. Uh, Russia earns 93 billion euro in revenue from fossil fuel exports in the first 100 days of the war. Up until June 3rd, the EU imported 61% of this. Uh, Largest importers were China, Germany, Italy, Netherlands, Turkey, Poland, France and India. So my question to you in respect of India and China is what do you think their intentions are in terms of, you know, short, medium, long term dependency on, on Russian fossil fuels? I think uh, overall, if you imagine the decision makers in, in Beijing, or I imagine Delhi for that matter, looking at what's happening in between Russia and Europe and Russia and Kazakhstan now. So yes, effectively Russia using fossil fuels uh, exports for blackmail. I don't think they're looking at that and, and going, we want to be in the position that Europe is in now. So especially building the kind of uh, reliance through pipelines that uh, Europe has is uh, not going to be attractive. And that's that's a massive impact on, on Russia's long-term economic prospects because the country has really shown that it's prepared to use uh, food exports, it's prepared to use uh, energy ex- exports for blackmail, even against countries that simply express support for 
Ukraine, like is the case now with blocking the uh, oil exports of Kazakhstan. So in that sense, uh, there's going to be somewhere wariness. Um, the other issue with, with China is that uh, the country has, has really been careful about not being seen as, as uh, certainly not violating the sanctions, but also not actively helping Russia to circumvent the sanctions. So in that sense, China has uh, still stayed on the fence for that. Also, they are for either India or China, the actual discounts on oil that they can get from Russia are not as uh, as uh, attractive as they might sound from the uh, spot market prices. So, so in the case of India, more than two thirds of the discount that you can get in European ports melts away by the time that the oil makes its way to India. So it's really short-term market-driven arbitrage rather than a strategy of building long-term reliance on Russia. Okay, Nandika, should go along with that. Russia not looking like a good prospect for a long-term partner in terms of uh, energy provision. I don't think so, because uh, if you look at domestic policy, like import of petroleum is the biggest burden on our exchequer. And government has been not trying to move away or reduce imports for uh, for a longer time. If you look like electrification of our uh, uh, transportation and railways and things like that stems from that aspect of how do we really uh, reduce reliance on uh, imported uh, uh, petroleum. So definitely the Russian uh, imports are not a long-term phenomenon. But the other side of uh, the equation is that the current energy security in India and therefore prices are really you know creating an uh, issue for uh, inflation. So, so therefore India has, uh, like the government has very less options other than going for purchasing a discounted uh, oil and discounted rate to keep inflation slow. So it's a necessity, very short term, uh, I presume, than a long term strategic. Uh... Fascinating insights and food for thought there. You can find out all about the work these guys are doing at energyandcleanair.org. Nandakesh Sivalingam and Laurie Milavirta from the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air. Thank you so much for joining Net Zero Investor. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter.